My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. Hello, welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. My name is Joe Devine, and today I was delighted to be joined by Alex Stewart, Michael Bailey of The Athletic, and Uncle Damien. That's right, my Uncle Damien, who is a, a long-time Norwich City fan, season ticket holder, um, away traveller, all the rest of it. So we thought we'd bring Damien, Uncle Damien along um, to give the fans' perspective on today's episode, which is all about Norwich City. Now, of course, Michael Bailey, uh, I'm reading now as a, from a bio- the Athletics biography of Michael Bailey. Michael Bailey is a true Norfolkian and Norwich City correspondent for... The Athletic. He previously worked for the Binken and the Eastern Daily Press, covering the Canaries home and away since 2007, winning regional and national awards for his coverage in the process, as well as being in the Carrow Road stands since the age of eight. So yes, today's episode, uh, joined by Uncle Damien and um, and Michael Bailey, is all about Norwich City. Now, of course, Norwich had a fantastic start to the season. They uh, played tremendous football all of last season in the championship. Alex and I had expected great and big things from them this year. Um, but things have halted since, well, I guess mid-September, so a couple of months now. They are sitting in the relegation zone as we speak, and they got a big December month coming up, uh, coming ahead. So uh, today's discussion is about what's going wrong, what could be done to uh, improve that, uh, Timu Puki, Emil Bandia, the kind of uh, relationship between the two of them. Michael talks about his trip to Finland to go and visit Puki's hometown and speak to friends and family and, and all the rest of it. We also talk a lot about Delia Smith, who was one of the owners or one of the majority shareholders of Norwich City. So for supporters um, from overseas or listeners to this podcast, I should say, from overseas who perhaps aren't so au fait with Norwich City or maybe don't know who Delia Smith is, we talk, we talk about Delia Smith too and Stuart Weber, who is the sporting director at the club. Um, I had a lovely time. I hope you do too. And before we get on with the podcast, let me first say that we are supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. Get a 30-day free trial and 50% off your annual subscription by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, 8p a day. It's really, really worth it. And if you're a Norwich City fan, particularly, Michael's writing has been fantastic and enjoyable to read. Um, And if you leave today's episode thinking, I want to hear more of that guy, The Athletic is the place to do so. Um, But yeah, without further ado, here is today's episode. Thank you for downloading. Uh, Michael Bailey, thanks so much for coming. Really appreciate it. Um, Also, uh, Uncle Damien's here. Hello. Hello, Uncle Damien. How are you? I'm fine. Good. Uh, We thought it'd be nice to have Uncle Damien along because Uncle Damien, who's been referenced on the podcast before, is a big time uh, Norwich fan. You're a season ticket holder, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. How long has that been the case? Oh, 25 years. Crikey. Okay, there you go. And also, you've been going to lots of away games this year. Yes, make the the most of the premiership season. Okay, well, that's a good place to start, (laughs) isn't it? Um, Alex, you're also here. 
Hello. Hello, how are you? Yeah. Good. Um, right, Michael, uh, let's start by saying that Alex and I um, are big admirers of Norwich. Uh, we talked about Norwich a lot last season. We talked about Norwich a lot over the summer. It's fair to say that we did quite a lot of bigging up of Norwich um, because we're big fans of the way that, that Norwich play. Um, <laughs> why have you made us so, look stupid? <laughs> yeah, why, why have you made us look stupid? Of course, there, there have been injury issues as well. But in, in your opinion, what's happened? Because it's not been the best start. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, they've also made me look stupid right. in a way. And I spent all summer bigging up Emmy sure. Buendia and I'm trying to work out where he's gone and who the one is that suddenly turned up playing on right. the pitch. I say in jest. Uh, it's not even where it's gone wrong this season, is it? It's literally where it's gone wrong since the middle of September. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that that is part of it because... You could possibly argue some teams took them slightly lightly in the right. opening six weeks of the season. No one's doing that now. And uh, Norwich haven't really adapted to how Premier League sides are um, closing them, pressing them, shutting down the things they do well. I think no one's taking them lightly. And I haven't really seen Norwich adapt to that yet in any way. They're still yeah. trying to do the same things. And I, I, I get entirely that they have a way they want to play. But by the same token, you have to evolve. They right. evolved last season during the Premier League. They evolved, uh, sorry, during the Championship, and they evolved for taking on Manchester City in the, in yeah. the Premier League this year. So it, they've got to do something a little bit different. But I mean, there's there's so many facets to it. Like you say, the, the injury crisis, and the crisis was really because it hit specific areas. I mean, losing yeah. three of your four recognised centre backs basically from well, from the start of the season to about now is it would hurt any yeah. any side. Um, they have players back now. They're not quite at full strength yet, but by the same token, there are players in that team who aren't really playing at a level that we would have expected either. And I think everyone was kind of hoping, hence the amount of faith they put in that squad last year, that the step up would come quicker than it has. That there are a few players there who are who are struggling more than we, we all thought. And especially in terms of the things they were supposed to be strong at. This is a possession-based side. They're supposed to be technically really proficient. Last year, the question marks were over there uh, physicality yeah. I mean this year there is a massive question mark over their physicality I think throughout the, the entire uh, side but also they're not keeping the ball very well and at times they don't look particularly technically proficient for the Premier League level so I mean there's a huge amount of question marks in terms of how the season develops from here and a bit of it is hoping that it is just a, a confidence issue that maybe mm. a spark will get them back to what they looked like um, a few weeks ago. I remember watching them. They played the opening game of the season, didn't they? It was against Liverpool. I remember watching it and thinking, brilliant. This is the Norwich that we've been waiting to see. I was delighted that although they lost the game, they had such a great go at it. And I thought that was going to give them a real confidence boost going into the rest of the season. I feel like there's also been a pattern when they've played against... It's dropped off recently but there had been a pattern when they played against the bigger teams in the league do you think there's uh, one aspect of it is that they are set up quite well in a way to be a, a sort of surprising team against other teams like Liverpool yet when they play teams closer to their position within the league that's when things really start to, to fall apart I think that's what the evidence looks like to a degree I mean the Man United game is an interesting one in that respect because I think a lot of Norwich fans went into that thinking oh hello we've got a chance here and yeah. normally they would never think that against United and suddenly they play a team who actually found a bit of swagger and it has been quite crucial in terms of Norwich going behind or getting ahead of themselves in terms of how the whole dynamic of the game has gone from there and I know mm. that generally happens anyway but certainly it's been quite profound for Norwich this this season but I do honestly find it quite hard to reconcile everything pre-Man City to post because I do think that was a defining result 
in terms of how Norwich went about it. And the way Norwich beat the press against Manchester City, they haven't even looked close to doing that against any other side. So it's like that that to me, you can see teams being much more uh, uh, um, uh, focused on Norwich's holding midfielder and the role they play in getting out of the press. And I guess when you lose your confidence, even the simple passes become a lot harder, never mind actually combining to make them, which again is something... It's really surprised me how there's such a lack of combining passes to create moves or to even get up the pitch. Um, so it, it's quite basic things. And it's a real test for Daniel Farker, who has a load of credit in the bank. He's done a brilliant job so far. But the way he coaches the side from here on in is going to be a, a real indicator as to how good he really is because mm. to battle that kind of momentum is, is very difficult. Yeah, Alex, on that point about uh, maybe there was a difference in the game against United, do you feel that it has something to do with the way in which Norwich play? So, for example, against teams like Liverpool and Man City who are going to have a lot more possession, they might serve better against Man United who play much better on the counter-attack. There are going to be problems there. What do you think? I, possibly. I, I think it's a really interesting point because when when you look at how Norwich played in the championship, there was a kind of automaton style in a good way. Everything seemed so incredibly fluid mm-hmm. um, and rehearsed, but in the best possible way. You know, there, there was room for moments of excellence and, and, you know, kind of extemporizing, but it they seemed like a team that really knitted well together. They all knew where they were supposed to be going and, and that's just kind of unfolded and that was part of that kind of relentlessness of their approach. And so when when you look at how they're stuttering now, and as, as you said, Michael, you know, kind of things that might apparently be simple, you know, finding the right person to break a press or making the right run, that kind of thing, it, it feels like that is a mentality thing rather than a tactical thing. The manner of playing is trying to be the same, but there's something that's not quite clicking. And the mm. fall off in terms of, because I, I agree with the Liverpool game, you know, it was the, the exciting <laughs> thing about that Liverpool game was they've, they've just turned up, they've played the scintillating way in the, in the championship and they're doing exactly the same thing. And this is amazing. And, um, you know, that, that kind of narrative of we're not going to compromise on our style, we're going to continue playing the same way whoever we're against. But it's not working. And it's not working for, for for sort of technical reasons rather than stylistic reasons, which I, I find really quite difficult to explain. Yeah, this is. The, I mean, so one of the things that we attempt to do on the podcast when teams are having a problem is to work out whether it is systematic or whether it's maybe more personnel based if there are confidence issues or things like that. Damien, view from the stands. Uh, here we go. I love it. It's a, it's a supporter's view from the stands. What do you think? I mean, as Alex says, they've been, and, and as Michael said as well, been trying to play the same way throughout the entire season. That is and isn't working at different times. Do you think it might be sort of personnel issue? Are there confidence issues there? Do you see particular players when you're watching the game? So you think well, you know, they're making obvious errors? Yeah, I think unfortunately the wrong players got injured. Right. Uh, as the point that you mentioned earlier on. And that's had an impact and a knock-on. Yeah. And I think that's gone into individual players' confidence. Yeah. We're talking about Buendia and he, he comes back and he's not the same player. Um, so, and maybe the Man City game just happened too early in the season, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, uh, you know, it can't be accounted for. You mentioned before, we were talking about this beforehand, that there's a big month of December and that maybe the way that you look at it is that this is not necessarily a make or break period, but it's very important, obviously, to pick up pick up results here. Presumably as well, getting on a little run like that might dissuade any of those confidence issues that, that are there at the moment. Uh, well, it needs to be reversed and quickly. Yeah. Um, we've got seven games, I think, in December. 
Uh, obviously, we've got um, uh, Arsenal as well um, at the beginning of December. So I know, I know that you know you always take take stock at the end of the year, halfway through the season. So the, the you know the injured players need to come back, but they also need to get match fit and and get their form back. Yeah, uh, and quickly. Um, otherwise, you might start slipping away. Yeah. Uh, another thing we said beforehand was, and look, it's, it's obviously it's very early in the season. We don't want to commit Norwich to a relegation battle, but it is fair to say that that might be the way that it's going. One way of looking at it, as we discussed beforehand, was in that case, all you have to do is be better than three other teams. Michael, do you see three other teams in the Premier League that you can beat this year? Well, let's be clear, Norwich are in a relegation battle. I hate this thing of only worrying about a relegation battle when you get to sort of March, because, you know, in terms of trends, you know, Norwich still need eight wins for the rest of the season to get to 30 points minimum. So, you know, and they've got, what, 12 fewer games to do that in. So there's pressure that comes from the, the season passing. I've said this all season, actually, since before... Um, things got going it looks an incredibly strong Premier League and I, I mean that almost in terms of all the established sides you know there seems to be a premium people have spent money pretty wisely in general clubs seem to be a little bit more akin about how they're going to be run I guess the the latest TV deal and the sort of acceleration of money they've got over the initial thrill of spending it all and actually now that money is, has had a profound effect on the quality of the sides compared to the championship I suppose and yeah. I mean I'm saying all this and then I just have ringing in my head Sheffield United that's the problem I've got with, with everything with every way I try to rationalise it and it, it does scream just how great a job Chris Wilder is doing there and in terms of the way he's coaching his side to be really hard to beat yeah. um, but in terms of Norwich Norwich don't have the budget of Sheffield United either there were elements that Norwich were weaker than Sheffield United last year in terms of um, having to work from behind more often conceding more goals that I think have probably given them a even though they were champions has given Norwich a tougher task in the in the Premier League yeah. um, and so in answer, I've really struggled with that question all season. I mean, you look at Newcastle thinking, well, they might be one of the worst ones. Norwich kind of turned them over relatively easily, but they've still spent huge amounts of money in the window and they've got some, some real quality there to be able to, to get themselves mm. going. Brighton, again, they've beaten Norwich with, with ease. And Graham Potter, who is a very good coach, and I know a lot of people at Norwich like Graham Potter for quite a few years, um, you know, he, he's done a really good job of moulding them and Southampton are in a crisis and it's like only teams in a crisis just starting to think maybe Norwich could finish above them. That's being brutally honest as, as we all sit here. It's, what do you it's really tough. Oh, well, as I said to Michael before we started recording, I did, please don't smile at me when you ask me a question like that. Um, yeah, I was at the, I was at the Everton game uh, and we were... Against Southampton. Yeah, sure. Sorry, just to be yeah, clear, yeah. Yeah, um, and it was awful. So yes, I would say That's quite one. quite possibly. Um, I mean, I agree that the, the Premier League is looking unusually strong. I think so far this season, there's been there's been a, a degree of variety in results. Nothing seems terribly predictable, but it's all. I mean, the only I think the only side that we talked about towards the end of last season with that pot of teams that were pos possibly looking to to push up and. Um, you know, disrupt the top six, quote unquote, is Watford. Obviously, they've had an absolutely terrible start to the season. Probably the only other massive surprise would be Spurs underperforming. Other than that, everyone looks pretty good most of the time. Um, and you've got, I think, crucially, Brighton and Bournemouth, who you'd maybe consider to be one of those 
potential sort of slip up and down teams. They both look very, very strong, particularly Brighton. I agree with our next tactics videos on Brighton. So I've been watching quite a lot of them recently. Um, and it, it is difficult to see. I mean, we we very firmly nailed our colours to the mast after the, the three promoted teams were sorted out that Nor- <laughs> Norwich were the, the strongest that, yeah. and, and most likely to stay up. And um, yeah, so that went well. But but I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Chris Wilder's doing a brilliant job. I still don't quite understand why teams are finding him so difficult to play against. And I get extremely fed up with people talking about overlapping centre-backs, like it's this incredible innovation that's somehow unfathomable. It's clever, but it's Mm. not unfathomable. And I don't understand why it's posing teams so many issues. Whereas Norwich, Norwich are very good, but I think stylistically they're more similar to enough other teams than a Sheffield United are to be easier to unpick in terms of opposition preparation. I I mean, Sheffield United are so resolute and there's such... um it, they're intangibles really aren't they in terms yeah. of just how thick they are to beat and although Norwich had lots of come from behind goals and lots of inner belief I wouldn't have necessarily said at any point they were really like a brick wall rugged and it's again that I don't know how, I mean Chris Wilder probably knows how you coach that but that they look the same at this level which again mm. is why probably t- tactically it's not quite so easy to unpick but just as a unit there's something there away from home. What the first team in 30 years, is it 25 years to go six games unbeaten as a newly promoted yeah. side in the Premier League. I mean, that's, that's yeah. ridiculous stat. I mean, Norwich, Norwich have got a point and it came from a game which has sort of been hailed as an improvement in performance against uh, Bournemouth and, and Norwich did for the first time look a bit more collective in what they were doing. Bournemouth were pretty dire that day as well. And also they've reacted by beating United at, at yeah. Dean Court since. So, um, you know, it's Norwich feel really easy to beat in transition. They leave masses space, masses of spaces a lot of the time. They kind of give things up. Yeah. And in the end, if, if your belief is driving you on to get yourself back into a game, that's going to keep taking a hit if you just keep finding yourself so open and exposed. And I think you end up looking at each other at yeah. that point. We, I mean, Damien and I watched the, um, uh, the, the goals uh, from the Brighton game over the weekend. And the first goal, the De La Feu goal, it's Watford. just so bad. Watford, yeah, it, Watford. That's with Watford, sorry. It's just so Within bad. Within two minutes. Yeah. And, yeah. and Ben Godfrey's gone on over, yeah. overlap. So and it, I know there's a runner taking the defenders away, but there's three or four defenders there and they just open up hmm. metres of space in the penalty box. And you think... After 92 seconds. You can't, I mean, yeah, you can, like, that's understandable if, if it's towards the end of a game and you're exhausted and you've been chasing the ball. But there's, there's something wrong there. But this, this is like, like what you were saying about Southampton is that w- when I watched us against Everton, the... I mean, concede after four minutes, I think Tom Davis, at the back, who had a fantastic game for Everton. But it was the the lack of passing options when, when the centre-backs were winning the ball, particularly Stevens was sort of not sure whether to carry it. There wasn't a passing option on. There was, people were static. They weren't looking. And you can, you can watch how a team sort of moves around the pitch and relates to itself, the, how the players relate to each other. And that's the sort of thing that gives you cause for concern. When people start looking at each other, when people start not moving for the ball, not showing for it. And and that's when I think you, like you said, it becomes intangibles. It's not necessarily to do with tactics. It's to do with 
mentality and those things that it sometimes gets a bit cliche wanting it more and so Mm -hmm. on but and it's you know it's hard to measure and and so on but you can you can infer things from players body language or the way that they're looking for things and i think you know southampton from that perspective are in crisis norwich maybe a bit there's an interesting thing to take from from the tactics though because and we we were speaking last on last week's podcast about Liverpool and the differences between Liverpool and City and how potentially losing a goal or uh, missing an opportunity, missing a chance for Liverpool is um, is what or it's more significant right because yeah, it's more they, significant. they, they create score, fewer chances. They create fewer chances and the goals that they score are worth more technically to their points than Manchester City's are. In, in, in a similar vein, looking at the differences between United and Norwich coming up, um, Norwich play in a and I'm going to ask you in a second Alex to just talk a little bit about how Norwich do play for those listeners who haven't been watching all, all season or, or indeed last season but there's an interesting idea that Norwich play in a particular style which enabled them to finish in a higher position than United did in the championship last year but that doesn't necessarily uh, transition to the Premier League in, in the same way do you see what I'm saying there might be a, a style of football that uh, United play which means that they uh, don't win the championship, but they're much more likely to stay up in the Premier League. It's an, it's an odd way of looking at it, that w- your highest position doesn't necessarily mean you're the better team, depending on what league you're in. But would you just tell me a little bit about how Norwich do play or how they're attempting to play at the moment? Yeah, I think to answer your first point quickly, mm. it, th- there is a lot in that regard to do with resilience. And I think people uh, have sort of assumed, and I think this is a point you made in a recent article, actually, that... If you have if you have a goal scorer who's going to get ten or fifteen goals, that in itself is is a really strong indication of the likelihood of surviving. And perhaps people undervalue the the qualities of defence and goalkeeper and so on in terms of avoiding relegation. That it's about buying a goal scorer or, or bringing a goal scorer with you in the case of Puki. And it's really interesting to see how much Norwich are throwing weight behind Trenner you know, make him happy and make him feel part. Of, I mean, I'm sure he does, but this whole thing with the Finnish national team was, was very interesting in that regard. So I think Sheffield what United, was, what was that? Oh, so they, I think, I mean, you'll know better than I will. They, it's probably easier for you to explain. Yeah. They're going to have a, a pookie party. Um, Norwich are going to have an official pookie party in right. Finland. Okay. And so they basically, um, the club are going over to Finland. They've had good talks with people over there and basically to lend their support to Finland's bid for history to qualify for their first major finals, right. which they can do against Liechtenstein okay. on Friday night, right. uh, which are in their winless. So you, it should happen. So you know, I don't think Norwich would ever want anyone doing it to them, sort of going like, we think you're going to go up, so we're going to have a massive party. But they, you know, <laughs> No, uh, fair play to Norwich. There's obviously massive commercial yeah. benefits as a piece on the Athletic They're about make it. A documentary, aren't they? they are going to make a documentary as well, and all sorts. <laughs> so, yeah, so, in, in Helsinki, yeah. So, and I, I went to Finland, obviously in in, yeah, in August to uh, yeah, to find yeah. out a bit about Timmy's. Well, I tell you what, what so. this is the perfect point to uh, to do our little advert, if you don't mind, for the Athletic. Uh, one of the things we do like to do when we have athletic journalists on halfway through the um, podcast is talk a little bit about an article that they've written. And I was going to ask you about your trip to Finland because I enjoyed reading that. Mm. Um, what was it like to go there? It was a, it was amazing. It was such a, a, a whirlwind given the, I mean, what was it? The second weekend of the season? Realistically, I'd only been at the Athletic for a few weeks. Um, I got a message after uh, from the boss after Timu scored his first goal saying, hmm, I think you might have to go to Finland. By the time he scored his third, it was in capital letters, wow. uh, you are going to Finland. Yeah. So, okay, right, fair enough. And uh, I mean, to, 
you know, to take on four days in a country I'd never been to before. The only two people I knew were two Finnish journos right. who had been over to Norwich the season before okay. to interview us about yeah. teaming. Um, and basically sort of kept going backwards and forwards between Helsinki and Kotka, which is where Timu grew up. Um, it was it was a blast. I mean, everyone was so proud yeah. of Timu. Everyone was so open and friendly and helpful. I've never known anything like it in terms right. of organizing interviews and people to speak to. And, you know, it's just some profound stuff about the impact Timu Pukki's had over there on Finnish football, but also his journey. I, I think there were a lot, uh, this is going to, again, it was all great then. It's a bit trickier now that he hasn't scored for a while, but, you know, his pedigree throughout the moment he first broke into youth football to going to uh, Sevilla and all of those things, you know, he ha has a real pedigree and real quality about him. And even now he's struggling at Norwich. I don't, I don't think that's about him per se. I think it's about people trying to stop him by stopping everyone else and the yeah. people around him are, are not really showing up for him in that regard. But uh, um, I think there is a real pedigree there and, and fair play to Norwich for having the bravery to be the ones to bring him to England and, he always looked too good for the championship last year. And I think, um, so I, it, it was really a really warm and, and friendly visit. And, um, everyone was just so happy to talk about him. They're mm. so proud of him. And, and personally having done that, uh, completed that trip and enjoyed it. I really hope they do the business on, yeah. on Friday night. I guess on Pookie as well. I mean, we know he can do it. As you said, it's probably more about the, the stopping, getting the ball to him or, it's a, it, yeah, it's a bit of a shame really, isn't it? Because I mean, when he came out of the gates early on in the season, I had him in my fantasy football team as my I captain for the first yeah. couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, but on, for the first week on your, on your um, suggestion, Damien, and uh, I was delighted. And I thought there was, there's something very interesting about, about the way that he does actually play. He's quite a functional player and the goals that he scores, the speed that he gets up to, when you look at him, you sort of think you, sh you shouldn't really be able to do any of that. He doesn't look like... Um, he doesn't look like Aguero, does he? But uh, he, you know, I love the little. And we we did a piece on we did a piece on this as well, a video at the, at the time about his little link up with Buendia. Mm. Every goal he scores is a weirdly kind of uh, floor based, strange angle off an angle that you think physically he shouldn't be able to um, to achieve the kind of pace that he does. He's a fantastic player, Alex. Uh, what's happened? Is it a case of, as, as Michael says, that the uh, supply to him has been throttled? I think so. I mean, when we. You, asked before about tactics so uh, Norwich Norwich like to generate width from the fullbacks and with Aarons and Lewis you know these two very young very dynamic attacking players Godfrey also was able to carry the ball forwards to break the press quite a lot you'd have a defensive midfielder dropping in and they would be able to to start building the play at the back sometimes quite slowly patiently but then there would be this explosion forwards and it was predicated a lot on pace quick interchanges of passing and the um the attacking three midfielders would sort of concertina in and, and move around a lot and try and effectively uh, create these passing angles through their movement so that Pookie would be, and this was the point that we made in the video, the, the angle of the pass and the angle of Pookie's run would, would, they wouldn't be the same, but they'd intersect at a mm. point and then he would be able to turn. And uh, I think you made a point recently in, in terms of uh, the, the, diminishing return of his finishing and you know he he scored those five six goals at the beginning of the season from quite a considerably lower xg so he was he was converting chances that he not that he shouldn't have converted but you know that it's an unsustainable rate for him but i do think if you can pin the fullbacks back and this is a trend that we've seen in the premier league 
you know, all kinds of teams are, are doing this now. United have done it against Liverpool, for example. There are, there are some teams who generate most of their forward momentum from their fullbacks. And if you can get those fullbacks to stay by having men up there, pushing them back, pressing them, whatever it is, and crucially, I think, denying the inside pass option for them, then you can prevent a lot of that go forwards. That's where Norwich would get their width from because none of those three attacking midfielders are particularly wide players. I mean, you know, Cantwell can come out wide, but generally speaking, they, they want to be creating little kind of diamonds or triangles of passing options in front of the opposition penalty box. They don't want to play out wide because that's what the fullbacks were doing. Mm. And I think in, in some regards, this goes back to what we were saying about how teams can be easier to play against and, and the difference between a team that is extraordinarily well organized and well drilled, but also has physicality, resilience, and does something that is a little bit unusual versus a team that is very slick and very fast, but is basically, and this is what happened with Norwich in the championship a lot, they're looking to steamroller teams. They're looking to, through a combination of pace, quick passing, and having a really good striker, they're looking to just wash over a side, even if they concede a few themselves. That doesn't really work in the Premier League, partly because a sort of slick positional passing 4-2-3-1 is a formation that's really familiar to Premier League sites. It's a lot easier to solve as a puzzle. And we've talked before about, you know, football tactics are basically you set a question to the opposition and they try and solve it. And I think Norwich's question is a lot simpler to solve for a variety of reasons than Sheffield United's is. Mm. So... Uh, well, on Pookie, then, if you would like to read Michael's piece uh, about his visit to Finland, you can visit www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO, get a 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription. How much is that? 8p a day? I believe it is. 8p a day, yeah? Or you could go to Michael's personal one, which is only 40% off, which isn't as good as ours, is it? No, so, that's true. There you go, yeah. Okay, uh, I would like to ask you about Stuart Webber, who is the footballing director. Is that sporting his director? Sporting director. Okay. Same difference. Uh, will you tell me what he does and where you found him? Because he's done a great job, hasn't he? Uh, well, I found him at a press conference. He was you just sat there, and it was lovely. <laughs> it was a wonderful um, fun. Uh, Norwich found him at Huddersfield, where he was doing a similar job, but not quite the same. Uh, because he had Dean Hoyle ahead of him, who was a very active owner and probably more of a chief exec under. Right. Under Stuart, so so Stuart's probably combined those roles at Norwich. He is one of a three-person exec committee, basically running the club day to day. Football uh, football is Stuart's department, so he look after everything to do with football, really, from the performance, first team, academy, signing players, recruiting players. Um, as a three, they also have input into the other sides of the business. So Stuart Webber will also be able to work out and and have a say in finances and things, which is looked after by Ben Kensel, who's the chief operating officer. Um, and Stuart Webber has been a marvel in terms of what he helped create at Huddersfield and then obviously creating it at Norwich when I think a lot of us were expecting something far more mediocre over a number of seasons as Norwich mm. tried to sort out their finances. Doing that, getting promoted at the same time was quite remarkable. So the fact that Stuart's done that at two clubs is is hugely impressive. Yeah. Can you give me a quick uh, short list of some of the players that he's brought in? Because he's been... He's become, you know, renowned, I think, for that um, 
for the um, scouting side of things and I know that there were reports earlier in the season linking him to almost every other single Premier League club who are in the market for a sporting director. Um, who, who's he responsible for bringing in? So, I mean, obviously you've got him, a recruitment team, analysts and stats, statisticians and people like that who are, some of them are already at the club, some have come in since Stuart's come, some Stuart's come in. But in terms of the players that have come in since Stuart Webber has been at the club, you basically have the entire side at the moment, yeah. I, I would generally say. Uh, there are players who've come up through the academy like Max Aarons and Jamal Lewis who are already in the academy, but then Stuart Webber has had a big say in actually them being promoted and saying, Daniel Farker, look at these guys. And Daniel going, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, ben, uh, ben Godfrey, a like, similar case. James Madison was already at the club. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say fair credit to Stuart Webber and Daniel Farker for not sending him back out on loan because I think the manager who was there before him was going to do that this year if he'd kept his job. Um, Emi Buendia, Timu Puki, Tim Krulon. I mean, all of them, basically. Yeah, there aren't many. Alex Tetti is probably the only player who, who as, as a senior player, who was, who was already at the club off the top of my head. Tom mm. Cantwell's another one who's come through the, the ranks. And Daniel, to back up Stuart, has done a really good job yeah. of bringing through the youth players, but or the younger players, but also having faith in them over a period of time rather than dipping them in and out. Now that of course might be trickier in the Premier League, but by the same token, the club want to give, want to increase the value of these players as a self-funding club. So you expect to see them continue to put the faith in them and hopefully learn from their mistakes. But uh, yeah, the whole ethos of the club on a football side is basically down to Stuart Webber in the last two years. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of mysticism around sporting directors who do their job really well. And, you know, they, they gain um, media notoriety now in a way that they weren't doing five, ten years ago. Is, there, is it obvious to you what Stuart Webber has done differently since since he's come in? Or is there... Is, Obviously, he's obviously contributed to the culture around the club if he's at the very top of all footballing matters. But is it obvious to you why he's become associated with the positivity in the way that he has done? Yeah, I think, well, the, the, evi the, evidence, the, yeah. the evidence is the key, key right. thing because of what he's achieved. But I think in terms of um, being around the club, there's a, <clears throat> a transparency that I've, I, you don't see very often at, at many football clubs. I mean, Norwich have had a really difficult situation financially in the last uh, two years. And the way that's been communicated to everyone has kind of helped with the expectations and it's helped with the acceptance of the fan base. And, you know, you, some people could look at Norwich and Newcastle and see similar ways of clubs trying to deal with it. But the way it's being communicated is entirely different. Mm. Um, I think there was a sense of bringing everything together. Now that is going to be sorely tested this year if, if things continue to go wrong. If Norwich don't win another game, then that's going to be very hard and a real test of it. So it is clearly easier when things are going well. But they did kind of ride out this first season under them both when it was really difficult and it was huge transition mm. with people questioning what was going on. But this sort of acceptance that will give them time and we're going to put the, our faith in them as, as a supporter base. So I think that buy-in of people and, and leading something is probably the thing that's most impressive. But Stuart Webber has been fortunate, I'm probably not quite the right word, but he, he's come into a job where he's been given that freedom to do it. Yeah. You know, he is a top dog really, as well as the people who are helping him, who no doubt he has a really close relationship with. So he's got that freedom. I don't know many clubs where the owners are, are willing to put their hands up and say, oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Let's now you get on. And also he's astute in that he, at both Huddersfield and Norwich, he's brought in managers who are used to the model. And I think he mentioned that before the game on Friday, right. um, that, you know, it would be harder to bring in Tony Pulis as an example or any English, English manager because there'd be things there that they would want to do that, say, a coach who's used to working with a sporting director in their proper role would be like, well, 
why well, I don't want to have to do that. I've mm. already got enough to get on with. And so in those distinctions, we mean things presumably... Daniel Farker signs off on whether or not a player does actually come but isn't necessarily responsible for the scouting itself 100% yeah so I mean they won't bring in a player that Daniel doesn't want because that would be pointless yeah. um, so you, you're going to need Daniel to go yeah okay I'll work with him mm-hmm. I think it is noticeable looking over the, the two and a bit years that and I think this was said at the time because Norwich haven't got much money their recruitment is riskier they do take gambles so plenty of signings they brought in haven't really worked some way you'd have thought they would um, and Sometimes you look at it and wonder if maybe they are more Stuart Webber's sort of suggestions than players that Daniel Farker has maybe looked at over years. That's just right. a hunch I've got. Um, but it is, you know, in that way, that is something that, that Stuart is, is managing in, in terms of the, the budgeting as well. And ultimately, probably instigating a huge amount of faith in Daniel Farker is Stuart Webber's job too. It's, mm. He isn't really under... Uh, pressure at, mo- at the moment individually because I think everyone around Norwich kind of knows the situation that they're in and um, providing nothing gets too embarrassing are, are willing to to continue to back it well yeah that was going to be my next question I mean I'll ask you Damien uh, let's say that Norwich do get relegated this season do you want Daniel Farker to stay presumably absolutely yeah yeah it's nice when that's the case isn't it I feel like that isn't the case very often this is well, this is what you, I think you, about you need Norwich consistency I mean, he's got us promoted once, he can do it again. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's not ideal, but as a personal preference, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and you would agree with that, Alex, would you? Yeah, and I'd also say, similarly, if we go down, then we should try and keep hold of Ralph Hassenhutl, because I think what's what's crucial, and I think this is to, to go back to Norwich, what, what Weber has done so effectively is to to foster a sense of a footballing outlook. So the, the key thing, I think, when particularly when you're working a sporting director alongside a manager, is that there has to be an overall template for how a side want to play. And that's balanced, I think, in terms of the resources available, the type of players that are coming through the youth system and how they're coached. Um, finding a manager that's going to fit that style and then empowering that manager through player acquisition, trust and facilitating it in other ways. But what, if, what about in this case where the way in which the club want to play might need to be adapted to, to suit the league or to stay in the league? I think there's a difference between strategy and tactics in that sense. Okay. So you can have an overall philosophy which may be you know, in maybe like two rigid banks of four and counter-attacking or maybe possessional or whatever it is, Gagan pressing, there are different types. Obviously within that, there is latitude to finesse that on a game-by-game basis, but you're not going to start seeing Norwich playing like Burnley, is my point. Okay. And then crucially, what you have to do is go and find players that will fit that style of play and fit that system and also pair that with a manager who does that. And I think that's the greatest distinction where between teams that have a sporting director who knows what they're doing and teams that don't, and this obviously is the German model, which is why people like Farker are more uh, used to it, is that, that the manager is required to buy into that philosophy and is ideally recruited because they can implement it in terms of how they have previously coached. And the biggest single problem with teams who chop and change between managers is they chop and change often between styles. And obviously a playing squad may be geared towards one style or another. But if you're constantly moving around and going from a a team that wants to sit deep to a team that wants to press, (laughs) etc., clearly you're going to have problems because players aren't all equipped to do the same thing. Mm. Okay. 
can I ask you both, Damien and Michael, about Delia Smith? And the reason I want to do that is, and let me just give you, this is probably a, a, a naive outsider's perspective, right? But the way that I look at Norwich, as I sort of hinted before when you were saying you'd be happy for Farker to stay in the event of relegation, is that Norwich is a really nice club where all nice things happen and Delia Smith's really nice and everyone's very happy all the time. I know that's not, that's not really the case, right? But that's what I see. Can, can one of you, let's go with you, Damien, can you just explain to me uh, and to our overseas listeners who may not oh, realise okay. the, uh, the institution that Delia Smith is, who's Delia Smith? Well, Why do I keep saying her name? Um, well, I think she started her career back in the 60s at the BBC. Right. Uh, in the early days of, of cookery programmes. Yes. Before uh, cooks were, you know, household celebrities. Yeah. Uh, so I think she, she forged her way into the, uh, the cookery heart of the nation. <laughs> she forged <laughs> And became an institution just like the BBC. Yeah. Um, she, she's, and the, she's the mother of the UK. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So she's a generation before... The whole you know, nameless host of cooks and chefs that you have now, yeah, um, and 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 with her husband who is uh, a publisher, um, it sounds like a you know a marriage made in heaven. Uh, they um, you know created a, a dynasty. Mm. I mean, and she, adopted a club when it was on its knees, right? Uh, very much so. Um, what's about was it twenty years ago now? Yeah. I guess um, as Norwich fans. As Norwich fans, mm. yeah, and um, they describe themselves as majority shareholders, which they which they are. And I think in the last couple of years, again with bringing in the new structure, they have stepped away a little bit more, um, as they are, you know, get, getting uh, older in years. Uh, but the passion is absolutely still there. And um, and if ever you described a club as a family club, I think you could you could apply that to Norwich, right? Yeah, uh, and it definitely comes from them. Uh, and Michael Wynne Jones is as passionate, uh, as lovely character, and just exudes the club. Um, and I guess it is absolutely unique in the Premiership, right? Yeah. I mean, that's as I was saying to you, Michael, before we started recording, that when we do these podcasts and we try to cover a kind of broader range of uh, of, of things about the club that we're discussing, ownership always comes up, and it's nearly always, you know, the most depressing part of the conversation. Yeah. There's, there's nearly always someone awful to discuss who's done awful things and who has somehow <laughs> been allowed uh, allowed to uh, to buy a football club. I, I just I'm so pleased to be able to talk about Delia Smith because it really doesn't feel like that. Um, what wh- what is her reception like amongst supporters? Obviously, you know, she's, she, she's well-liked by many, but is there, is there a downside to it as well? Well, I think what I would say is everyone looking from the outside into Norwich will have massive respect for what Delia and Michael represent as football owners. Yeah. And they would probably want their owners to be like that. But open, um, honest, uh, letting people do the job who have done it and can do it in terms of running the club around the place, accessible, Supporters as, well. supporters as well and I think a, a vast majority of Norwich City fans see them for what they are the ish, the only issue and it does only ever come up when times are tough is that there is a ceiling to what they can achieve I, th- I, th- I think in because they don't really they have the money to invest the, they the had the money ceiling, exactly right. they had the money to um, to help the club and to save it effectively um, and they've put in lots of money in the past at various times to keep it afloat or to achieve this and that. Um, they've got all that money back. They, the club are in a position where they're internally and externally debt-free, although the accounts are in the middle of a season, which is, or I think the accounts they've sort of 
it's a snapshot where they do owe money and by the time they finish this, the Premier League season it'll be back on an even keel so that's probably why it looks a bit worse at the moment than, than it would be but essentially the club is externally and internally debt free and that's great for a certain level but it doesn't half make it difficult when I think you're trying to sustain yourself in the Premier League I think it is a it is a unique model in terms of what Norwich are trying to achieve this year what Burnley have done is you know they have owners who I think are a group of local business um, people so they were able to invest and kind of just give them that little that enough money really to establish themselves and now they're in a self-sustaining pattern which is great Norwich are trying to get into a self-sustaining pattern without that initial investment mm. which you, we, you can see is so hard they've they've kind of done that by putting their faith into everything that got them there last year but that's really hard I mean even under Paul Lambert back in 2011-12 when you know they'd had successive promotions they, they spent a little bit of money to to get there and that was kind of what instigated the continuation of the moment of the momentum and mm. um they actually did that on a budget, but still spent probably more money than they have done this time around. Right. So I think there's just a frustration when it gets tough at what the, the downside of the owners they have. But that's not to, you know, take away from everything else. You know, football fans are human. Norwich City fans have the same psychology as everyone else. If it's going poorly as they see it, um, then they they want to work out why that is and they generally want to blame someone and, and Delia and Michael in fairness tend to get the stick when it's going badly and then the managers and whoever get the mm. <laughs> praise when it's going well which was different last year they, they, Delia and Michael got a fair amount of the praise for, for what happened last year as, as well um, it, that's why this season will be a test mm. even of the great the, 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 it's brilliant that we can sit here and say look we still want Daniel to be in charge and we still want Norwich to keep building and you know if they go down and go back up it's brilliant but you, you know so sociology and the way humans deal with things if if it's really tough people get on the backs of things and they do want change and it's that's mm. a really difficult behavior to to deal with my concern as well would be that presumably the the single biggest way that norwich would be able to raise funds is through player sales and of course if your team has been Relegated, you're not going to want to sell anyone in January unless you really super have to. And I know your recent piece, you said there's a small budget available for acquisitions in January, but you're not going to want to sell anyone, particularly with the injury problems you've had. So at that point, you then think, well, potentially players will have to be sold in the summer. And you've got a lot of interesting players that teams would want to buy, particularly the two fullbacks and Godfrey, I would suggest. Um, but if you've just been relegated, then the value of those players diminishes for a variety of reasons and you can't charge the kind of premium that maybe you could if you were able to stay up. So it seems to me there's kind of an inherent tension there as well that the the quality of the performance is at once going to be a bonus because it keeps you up, but it also has a an in, kind of incumbent benefit in terms of then being able to realise value on those players. 100%. And I think that's, that is a significant part of Norwich's model over these three years until they feel they can establish themselves and, and become self-sustaining. It, it does remind me of Southampton because I used to look at Southampton yeah. producing these great players, selling them on for big money and then reinvesting and that would be enough. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's great, but you can't keep doing that year on year because eventually you won't have that player or you'll not quite spend the money how you should have done. 
And now I'm seeing it thinking, well, that's what Norwich want to do and I'm hoping it will work. And, it, 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 you know, it's it's hugely difficult to sustain. I mean, selling James, just looking at your board there at the bottom, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention it, but selling James Madison two years ago, I mean, that, that got them out of the, out of the, by far Norwich's best player, got them out of their hole. Yeah. And then that money helped them bring in three or four players that created a championship winning squad. So I think there is a difference though, if you compare and contrast the two things and, and that, that the two clubs, the difference being the stability behind the scenes, because that's something that Southampton have lacked. And there was an article again on the athletic, God, I sound like such a shill. Um, Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> um, that I think Carl and a couple of others did about the, de- you know, departure of Les Reed and the, the issues behind the, the scenes at Southampton. And, like you say, if if there is a conveyor belt of talent from the the youth system and Norwich, I guess have some benefit in terms of their catchment area. They're fairly alone in that, apart from Ipswich, who we shall not name. Sorry, um, you know it does help because then you can hoover up these young players and, and ideally sell them off. But you have to have intelligent decision makers with a remit to be able to run those sides of things in situ for long periods of time to see that through. And if you start panicking or if Stuart Webber gets taken off by a, a club with deeper pockets, which I think would be a great shame because I don't think he'd get the latitude at, you know, the people linking him with Manchester United or whomsoever. He, he's not going to get to do the same job. It's, you know, he would be hired on the basis of what he'd achieved and then not allowed to achieve the same thing again. Um, but if he goes and you start to lose that stability, then the conveyor belt model does dry up. That's that's my experience as a Southampton fan. Sorry if that's a bit <laughs> a bit of a negative no, way not of looking at, all. at things. I take it, and and also, I mean, there was it was the big news of uh, earlier in this earlier in this season that Stuart Webber had officially signed his new three year contract. I mean, it's quite a big thing to have a sporting director signing a for a specific amount of time because mm. they are effectively the, the the constant compared to a head coach who can come and go that's that's one of the ideas behind the model at the moment Stuart Webber's contract is the same length as as Daniel Farker he said this is means unless Norwich sack me I won't be going anywhere which is what he said for three years which mm. is great uh, but also that at the end of those three years I'm probably 99% off ski so you know there's a degree of succession planning that will have to take place um, and that's going to be a, a, a huge appointment at that point in terms of how Norwich sustain whatever it is they've achieved up until that point. What's the succession plan for for Delia and Michael? Is there is there anything in mind? I mean, as we said, it's a good question. Attempt fate, but they but they are getting on in age, as you said. They've kind of stepped back a little bit this season and last season from from direct responsibility with the club is there something in mind there so I spoke to them exclusively for the athletic you can read it all okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's the first time I've said it so that's fine like, yeah. I'm employed by them um, I've said uh, more that's, than you have <laughs> that's over at the website in two parts and I asked them that and um, they didn't really want to tell me to be brutally honest but right. uh, I think um, they won't be going anywhere for as long as they can get you know to a game that, yeah. and, and I don't think they have any plans to disappear or do anything different they said that there is a succession plan in place so I think they're conscious of it I think it's it's notable that Tom Smith their nephew is, is on the board of directors have a lot of time for Tom and uh, what his involvement might be beyond Delia and Michael is, is probably one avenue um, it's interesting though because they are open to people coming in I think they would be open to selling 
if the right situation arose, but I mean, what how, is the right situation? Well, that, isn't that the million dollar question? Mm. I think probably another clone of Delia Michael with more money turning <laughs> well, this up. Is, this is uh, Mary uh, Berry. It has, <laughs> I mean, they don't grow Alan Partridge. Partridge. It's yeah. into Alan Partridge. He's busy. Um, but, you know, I, I do wonder whether there is an avenue for more Norfolk business people getting involved in the club. It, it strikes me that they can't, how are there not more people with a Norfolk background? Mm. And, and a bit of money who wouldn't That's come true. into some sort of um, collegiate kind of way of running the club. I, I've, it's always sort of uh, evaded me as to why that isn't something that might well happen. What, what did Ed Balls do when he was there? Cool, that's a big question. He was, he exact, was chairman. He? he was yeah. chairman. He was on the board. Um, I think he was there for probably a year and a half, I think. Did the chief exec job for a little bit after I think it was after Jez Moxie left mm, wasn't it that was yeah. an ill-fated appointment um, and yeah I think he sort of helped pop in and out and got involved in a few board meetings but it's the thing with fans being involved <laughs> that at the was top so end diplomatically <laughs> it's the thing with football fans being involved at the top end of the club isn't it some are like woohoo <laughs> and some you know try to have an impact mm. okay well look we're going to wrap things up uh, in a moment but um can I first ask I mean I know it's an impossible question to answer I don't know why I bother asking it at the end of Thanks. every podcast I but I do and I'm going to Thanks. what are your expectations your honest expectations do you feel like Norwich can dig themselves out of the hole um, honestly I, I think it's a real struggle because yeah. I think of the strength of the division and I think I'm looking for too many pe pe people to step up but we are still early and there's a long way to go so I'm certainly not writing them off but I, I think it's going to be a real struggle for the rest of the season so I just hope they do something that means everyone still has belief in what they're trying to do mm. and then you just hope that sees you through to whatever's next Damien? Um, I think things will improve they can't get any worse I'm optimistic <laughs> um, I think it's a little bit too early to panic um, but things have to change and change quickly and as I said earlier on I think the month of December is going to be key um, but I, again I, I hang on confident that there will be three teams that will be worse than us right okay can I also say people should visit Norwich because what a fucking lovely place it is oh it's a wonderful city tell me, tell me about Norwich tell me about the city of Norwich we'd avoided <laughs> swearing until you said <laughs> that sorry. you can edit that, that out be bad, yeah, yeah. but tell me, tell me about Norwich it's lovely isn't it it's, 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 it's got a special place in my heart it really, yeah, it really well, does I love um, it you know a lot of my family live there and whenever I've taken uh, people, friends up up to up to Norwich and Norfolk, mm. all loved it. Yeah, and and have and have gone back. Yeah, it's a beautiful county. Tell you what, I went to Blakeney not that long ago. Blakeney's I've gorgeous. been to Blakeney. That place is so I That's loved it. Rolo's it's weird. favorite place. The kind of like, it's got sort of moors out to the sea. Yeah, and it was very misty when I was there, and it felt seals. like I was in a Doctor Who episode. Or and something. they're also yeah. with those weird um, windmills. They got a lot of weird windmills there. Yeah. One well, of the boats, all the seals. They're not they're weird. They're weird. They're weird by virtue of their location. They're not in Holland. It's quite windy on the coast. Well, no, but they look more like Dutch windmills. If you compare them with the ones that you're getting, we're closer to Holland. Wales, okay. Wales. There are Dutch windmills. Okay. There's a lot of the, the history of. North There's a lot of Dutch windmills. It's, it's low and flat and faces Holland. And, and also the trading links with the wool and well, so forth. If you look at a lot of Norfolk place names, they've got Dutch origin. They really? I didn't know that. This is a whole other podcast. Well, you it? asked about the history. No, I'm, I'm genuinely fascinated. <laughs> um, do you have a, any predictions? I know you don't like predictions, but what, what do you feel like? I'm probably more bullish than you are. Thanks. Um, That's good. Partly because what's going to happen come 
I think January, February, once or probably towards the end of December, beginning of January, once there's money to be spent, uh, there'll be three or four teams that will sack their managers. And I think that's a mistake, probably, because I think the new manager bounce is effectively a myth. So I would see that Norwich's continuity will be their strength when other failing teams don't have the same degree right. of confidence. Yeah. Are you also partly bullish because we bigged up Norwich so, so much? Yeah, it would be like, great. I look like a twat for, if they yeah. go down. Well, maybe yeah. it's a case no. just got our crisis over early on in the season. Maybe, yeah. 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 It's a charge to the finish line now, hey? I I, exactly. I think they'll be all right. Well, let, look, let's get back together uh, in May. and uh, Let's not. Let's not. Let's um, not. <laughs> Michael, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Please do go and read all of Michael's uh, work at The Athletic. Damien, thanks for coming also. Pleasure. Have Thank you enjoyed you. yourself? Absolutely. Yeah? yeah. Uh, Alex, cheers. And uh, we'll be back next week with... Um, with James McNicholas, also oh. from The Athletic, and we're going to talk about Arsenal, Arsenal. which I feel like, yeah. even though this has been quite a depressing conversation, that's going to be more depressing. Well, how has this been hopefully, depressing? Hopefully after well, it the hasn't. First that's December. what I'm saying. It sort of should be. It feels like it should have been, but I don't think it has. Yeah, but there's, right. there's Dutch windmills. There's a lot of Dutch windmills. And a yeah. sporting director. Exactly. What's not to love? True. Uh, right, see you next week. Mm-hmm.